this week on Life and Faith. I was interested in digging out the creative process in science and getting scientists to articulate that better. And the reason I was doing that was because I was fed up with getting sad by going to high schools and talking to really bright kids who could have done anything they wanted and they'd given up science. I know, you know, it's great if you do humanities subjects, I'm not knocking that at all. But if you give up science because you don't think there is any room in it for your own imagination or own creativity, then that's desperately sad. Art is absolutely useless, therefore it's essential. It's not no more being, it's just no more of the ticking of the clock. Raising a person, that's a complex task. I was surprised, I was surprised, it was surprised. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart, and on this episode, we welcome back the physicist Tom McLeish. He talks about science with more excitement than anyone I've ever met, and that enthusiasm is contagious. He's the author of several books, including Faith and Wisdom in Science, and one called The Poetry and Music of Science, which is all about creativity in science. And that's our topic for today. If you tend to put science, you know, facts, data, experiments in one mental column and creativity, art and beauty in a separate column, Tom McLeish wants to break down the walls between those. Appropriately then, in this episode, you're also going to hear from Mary Peelan, who has been called either a poet-scientist or a scientist-poet. First, though, Natasha Moore spoke with Professor McLeish. Tom McLeish, welcome back to Life and Faith. Thank you, Natasha. It's been a while. It's absolutely great to be back with you. It has been a few years. <laughs> yeah. um, since the last time we talked, you have, I believe, a new job and a new job title. And Professor a new university, yes. Professor of Natural Philosophy, yeah. which kind of sounds a bit like you've landed a job from like the 18th century, which is cool. Absolutely, or even the 13th century or the oh, 14th so century. So talk I me mean, through that as yeah, a title. Well, so uh, the old universities in England and all the universities in Scotland uh, were old enough, still have ancient chairs of natural philosophy in their departments of physics uh, because it was the old name for science. It was the Renaissance, medieval Renaissance right into the early modern, actually, named for, uh, well, physics, but more generally, you know, the quantitative sciences of, of, of nature. But I've always preferred the name natural philosopher to scientist. And, and I couldn't think why that was until I, I unpacked the, the sort of meanings of the word. So scientist comes from Latin. It comes from the word skill, I know. So when you say I'm a scientist, you're, sort of not, you're making a knowledge claim. And I honestly think that's one of the elements that puts people off science a bit. Whereas if you say I'm a natural philosopher, well, that comes from Greek. So it's less militaristic anyway, in terms of its history. <laughs> of course, and, and philosophy is love of wisdom. So if you're a natural philosopher, you're a love of wisdom to do with nature. And I've even tried this talking with publics about science generally, particularly for those people who for whom science is a complete turnoff. And so, well, suppose instead of saying science, you said, uh, you know, let's talk about the love of wisdom to do with nature. You know, does that sound any more attractive? And someone will go, oh, yeah, that sounds much more attractive. And because it joins it up with everything else. So when I came to University of York from Durham three years ago, and they wanted to create this post, which was very interdisciplinary. So I have a lovely job. I'm in physics, the physics department, and I work with physics about three days a week. But I also have a day a week at the Centre for Medieval Studies, where I do this work on medieval history of science, and a day at the 
um, humanities research centre because I'm trying to build links from the science to the humanities disciplines in particular and see what comes out. And they said, well, what would you like us to call your job? And at first, they suddenly come into my mind. I've been saying all this stuff about natural philosophy. I said, well, if you're up for it, call it the chair of natural philosophy. And then, and they, like you, the first is, oh, no, it sounds a bit old-fashioned. <laughs> and then they thought about it for a bit. And they well, actually, I think we will. So it's the first new chair of natural philosophy for about two centuries in the UK. <laughs> oh, that is so fun. <laughs> that, Your business fun? card must I'm be. I'm so proud of it. I hope it's made of so parchment. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Well, um, that's a good point. I should actually get them to write it on a vellum scroll. In, in, in. <laughs> Good point, Natasha. I haven't done that. We should do that. I want a parchment saying it. <laughs> so, I mean, I want us to talk in this conversation about that whole idea of kind of wholeness and crossing some of those boundaries that have been rigidly in place for so long. Almost some of those divorces that have happened in and around right. science. Yeah. It's become separated from other disciplines and ways of thinking. Um, but before we talk about what's problematic about sure. that, it is actually the case, isn't it, that we need the specialization. Um, you know, there's so much to know and to grasp. You can't actually do right. stuff in a field without some narrowing, right? Yeah, right. That's true. And in fact, if we don't become experts at something, we don't really have much to give to the party, as it were. I mean, we can come along with a smattering of this and that, but a smattering of this and that doesn't really do any good. We can't solve any of the world's major problems. You know, however, while we're on the subject, just for example, of instrumentally solving some of the world's big problems, uh, microbial resistance, climate change, pandemics, you yeah, on it goes. Um, name me a single one of these major challenges facing the human race, in fact, the planet in general, whose answer lies in one discipline. Oh, physics can do this. Biology can do it. Political studies can do it. No, it doesn't. The world doesn't recognise disciplines. And in fact, if you look historically at what academia has done, yeah, there have always been, been disciplines, but centuries ago, they were carved up a different way. Oh, and everyone studied astronomy, by the way, as they definitely still should, in my opinion, yeah, as well as mathematics and theology and law and so forth. So you see, if you go too far down your own rabbit holes, um, you forget about the existence of other rabbit holes and you don't even know where they start. Uh, you can't talk to them. And where we have got to in most of our academia is to a place where we are so far specialised in our disciplines, we don't even know the language of the others. So it makes it very difficult to pull together uh, to bring our own disciplines to the parties and yet to weave together a pan-disciplinary approach to topics. And that's my approach to this interdisciplinarity thing. It's not that everyone should be a jack or jill of all trades. It's just that sometimes I say um, it's lovely. This is what I've tried to do myself, to become a T-shaped person. I've worked in medieval studies now, for example, for 12 years with medievalists. I've been to paleography courses, I've brushed up my Latin, I've read large amounts of stuff, in, but I will never be a humanities medieval historian. That's not my discipline. I can, you know, know a fair bit about it, but the way I do my medieval work is all that stuff goes into being able to recognise what it is that my Latinist, my historian, my medieval philosopher friends can do expertly. I can engage them critically and ask them questions about how they, why they think this, that and the other. But what I can bring is my scientific, my physics knowledge, my natural philosophy knowledge to the party. And we can uncover what it was that 13th century tree 
treaties on light were really saying, or when they looked at the rainbow, how hard they were looking at a rainbow, and so on. So that's that's how I think it works. Become T-shaped people, you see. So you, you've got your deep discipline and you've got your arms. Uh, you've developed your arm muscles, I think, or intellectual arm muscles to reach out to <laughs> the other disciplines so on the side. to clarify, do you think everyone should be T people or yeah, there are well, particular kind of you know, ambassadors. That's a good question. Well, don't forget, I'm not talking about just ambassador people. I'm talking about real experts in their disciplines. Mm. Uh, my recommendation would be that it's good to be T-shaped. If you're a physicist, you know, read literature. Or if you're a chemist, read some history. Or if you're a biologist, you know, learn some Renaissance Italian art or something. Even if being in interdisciplinary teams is not your thing. The other reason for this is that we forget in science that what we call the scientific method is really only the method for a tiny bit of science. It's the only bit of science that there can be a method for, insofar as there is, which is testing out and checking our hypotheses and our scientific ideas when we've got them. The really crucial step in science is to get good ideas going in the first place, to have great new insight, to imagine whole new structures of the world or fungus under trees or black holes or whatever you might be. There is no method. There really is no method for having great, innovative, scientific, imaginative, creative ideas. So where do they come from? Where they come from is the integration of everything you've got in your brain. Now, ask me this. Are you more likely to have a radical, make a radical step forward in your discipline if all you read is the stuff people have already written in your discipline. Or if you've mixed that with a bit of interesting stuff from other places. And you know that goes quite deep in our brain, it goes to our non-conscious, our subconscious part of our brain where everything's mixed up. I think there's sufficient neuroscience of creativity known now to make a strong recommendation that we mix it up a bit. <laughs> so you're latest book, The Poetry and Music of Science, yeah. like you talk about the parallels between uh, what poets do, what artists do, uh -huh. and what scientists do. Mm -hmm. what, what kinds of things do they have in common? Yeah. Why compare those? Sure. Well, the why, the reason I was comparing them was because I was interested in digging out the creative process in science and getting scientists to articulate that better. And the reason I was doing that was because I was fed up with getting sad by going to high schools and talking to really bright kids who could have done anything they wanted and they'd given up science. I know, you know, it's great if you do humanities subjects, I'm not knocking that at all. But if you give up science because you don't think there is any room in it for your own imagination or in creativity, then that's desperately sad. And that's what the message I was getting all the time. So then the th other ingredient was meeting way back when I was a professor at Leeds University, having lunch, I still remember, ages ago in the 90s, this was with Ken Hayes, who was press of art, fine art at Leeds and the head of department at that point. The nice thing about the art, uh, professors of art at Leeds is they're all artists as well. I mean, they're academics, but they all do their own art. Ken's at uh, that point was doing lovely stuff in mixed media and... I said, Ken, you know, I'd really like to know how you go about a project in art. I mean, how do you, st you know, you, there you are in a studio, got a blank canvas and a paint pot. What do you do? What do you first? How, where's your first step? He said, well, it's not quite like that. And he talked me through an idea he'd had. It was about backgrounds to some World War II photographs and carry the meaning and across and to reflect them and in colour and texture. And then, and then he had ideas and he tried those ideas. I explained why the first attempt he made at his art didn't work. And though he tried something else. After a while, I said, you know, Ken, if you changed a few of the words in this story, it could be me telling you 
how about my last science project and what didn't work and how I started with this idea, but the idea morphed into that one. And so I'm really interested in this. Can we talk a bit more? So we did. And then I decided I would talk with scientists, physicists, biologists, chemists, engineers, mathematicians too, musicians, composers, poets, artists, and get them to tell me the story of, don't explain to me what you've just finished is nice. Actually, scientists are particularly hard at understanding this. No, no, I don't want to hear some of your last paper. I want to hear the story. Tell me the story, including the false turns, the so-called mistakes, the misunderstandings, the distant hopes and visions. Tell me everything. And by the time I collected, I don't know, 30, 40, I can't remember how many people I talked to about this, I found a very common story. I was hearing a pattern and I've ended up calling it the creativity narrative to add to those, you know, Chris Booker wrote this book called The Seven Great Plots. You know, they're supposed to be just seven stories. You know, there's the girl meets boy story or the finding a way home story or the great quest story. Or whatever. But one of the ones he missed out is the creation story. And by that, I'm not talking about the creation myths uh, of gods or gods and the creation of the world, which every inner civilization has. I mean the story of humans trying to bring something new into the world that wasn't there before. And that has far more commonality across the arts and the sciences and the humanities, actually, than I thought it would at first. So that's one of them. There are other ways that they have in common, but that's, that's the most striking one. Someone who exercises this kind of creativity and across disciplinary lines is the American poet Mary Peelan. Her award-winning first book of poems was published in 2019 and is fittingly called Quantum Heresies. Her poetry threads together science, literature and spirituality, among other things. And reading her stuff, you really see how these supposedly separate areas of life reflect each other and reveal things about each other. The poem Mary reads here is called Chaos Theory. And probably you're going to need more than one listen or more than one read to get it. The poem is available from Radar Poetry. We'll put the link in the show notes. But for this first listen... I recommend just sitting back and letting the different images wash over you. Chaos Theory Entangled in the electromagnetic field around a human heart, fate changes its shape recursively. I learned in childhood how destiny turns on tiny things, cracks in the sidewalk, sticks and stones apparitions fulfilling the promise of fundamental symmetry. It takes an eye for pattern to see the way the soothsayer sees, or Mandelbrot, his fractal designs carving the limits of space. Galaxies swirl in a teacup, animals run through pixelated clouds, new universes like fictions arise not out of emptiness, but how it's filled with gravestones and doxologies. Ghost of Grandma P everywhere I look, exhorting me to trust in Jesus. Lorem ipsum of my soul's erratic geometry. This is Life and Faith, and we're talking science and creativity. That was Chaos Theory by Mary Peelan. And here's physicist and author Tom McLeish again in conversation with Natasha. 
you have a section in the book on music and mathematics, which maybe for a lot of people mm-hmm. would be kind of the like a more natural, oh, yeah, mm. people talk about how mathematical some music can be. But as a literature person myself, I love that there's a section called Experimental Science and the Art of the Novel. Yeah. Um, can Isn't you talk that about that? How is fiction? <laughs> of course like I science? can. Well, there's a big surprise. The book was full of surprises. So one of the surprises was the book I originally set out to write. It forbade me from writing it. um, I'm sure all your listeners are writing books, so they'll know this process. You set out to write a book. And in fact, self-referentially, of course, writing the book became an illustration of the creative process I was talking about because I set out to write a book which had a bunch of science creation stories and would have a bunch of arts creation stories. And then a nice concluding chapter, a sort of undergraduate-style essay comparing and across the two. (laughs) And that book said, no, I'm not going to get written by you because that's not the story is it and I said no it's not the story and so instead of there being arty ways or literary ways and sciencey ways of creating I felt there were visual ways of thinking that were shared between art and science there were wordy literature ways that were shared between art and science and there were other ways that didn't involve pictures or words transcendental words if you like wordless and pictureless ways and that's where the music and money comes in so there are three creative modes I've found. Well, there are other ways of cutting this pie, but, you know, the visual, the literature and the abstract. And then a professor of English literature at Durham, where I was working at, uh, said to me, Tom, he said, you know that, and she's really interested in science. So she's one of these T-shaped people, um, a professor of English literature, uh, Virginia Woolf particularly, many others, but she looks at, at very interesting uh, art and science. And she said, you know that there's no coincidence, do you, that the scientific experimental method and the early English novel both got going in the 17th century. Really bad. (laughs) Tell me more. And sure enough, there's something about this 17th century, the, the, you know, beginning of the modern period, if you like, you know, the foundation of the Royal Society, Galilei, Newton, Boyle, Margaret Cavendish, Milton, and Defoe, and Gulliver's Travels, uh, you know, Robinson Crusoe. It's a zeitgeist thing because you need huge imagination and huge confidence to do both experimental science or write a novel. And the reason for this, it's that type of confidence, huge confidence in creating a small world. If you talk to novelists, as I'm sure Natasha have done many, many times about how they write their novels, the word which you initially wouldn't have a surprise to hear very much, but which you hear over and over again, is that they observe their characters. This is how not many novels work, not all, of course, but many, many, many do. They set up their little small world arrangement of their characters and their goals and challenges, and then they watch what happens to them. <laughs> they run a sort of mental experiment, and their characters take on a life of their own. Here, a novelist struggles. They'll often have to rewrite and redraft. I mean, Ben Ockrey telling me this at a wonderful talk in Oxford. I heard him in dialogue with the physicist Roger Penrose. And Penrose saying, you know, it's all this, it's all very well, this talk about science and, and literature. But the point is, science has to be right. You novelists have got complete freedom. You can make your characters do anything you want. And Ben Ockrey said, basically, no, we can't. It's Mr. Professor Penrose, do you know how many times I had to redraft my last novel until the characters were faithful to themselves? And the answer was 24. 
So constraint, you see on the novelist. So a novel plays out something and we see how it might yeah. work. A in novel life. is simple enough for a single human being to write another one to read. It's a tiny piece of the world, but a good novel is profound enough for us to go, oh, yeah, you've really got something about human nature there. I find your enthusiasm when you talk about anything, and especially science, very catching. And what you're saying there makes me particularly go, isn't the human mind slash brain remarkable? For you, what does all this make you reflect or instinctively feel about what it is to be human and the fact that we can do all this and how we, where we stand in relation yeah. to the rest of nature? Well, that's really a profound question. And I think, of course, I mean, science can't tell us much about in human relational terms, our relationship with the rest of nature is it can tell us in all sorts of evolutionary ways how we are connected with nature, how we've evolved in the tree of life. And that's fascinating. In fact, I think it does a lot more to embed us in our place of responsibility into the um, family of other of other life. If you were science can, of course, tell us ways in which we are harming nature in hurting our planet um, as it has done in the last century it can also tell us ways in which nature can harm us and how we can mitigate that harm so science can tell you all that but they can't tell you really what our relationship with nature morally is that has to come from somewhere else so this is one of the ways in which i find christian thinking to be honest just helpful as a source of ideas and guidance and, and creative in itself and challenging and, and, and critical, uh, sort of biting. And um, what that says is that, you know, my reading of it at least is like, like St. Paul summarised in your Christianity. He'd be great on radio, the soundbite. I've only got two minutes, Paul. Could you just, just summarise what this crazy new movement is? You know, are you renegades, Jews, are you zealots? Are you, what are you? What are you? You weirdos, what are you? This, this way, this Christian thing. And he'd say, look, John or Natasha or whoever's interviewing and say, look, we're in the business of mending broken relationships. That's what we are. That's what we do. Oh, we knew he'd say that because he said that to the Corinthians. He wrote them a, a letter trying to get them to understand what he was on about. He said, we have the ministry of reconciliation. Those are the posh words it's usually translated. Everything's about healing. And you know, if you unpack this, uh, the reason everything's about healing is because lots about being humans are broken and we hurt each other, we hurt our marriages, we hurt our countries, our races, our genders, our, oh goodness, you know, we hurt each other a lot. And actually we hurt even non-human things, we hurt nature and nature hurts us a lot. And all these things need mending. And it all stems from the fact that the most important relationship of all is broken, that's the broken relationship between the creator and us. Fortunately, because we, we couldn't, we'd be incapable of doing anything about that ourselves, obviously, you know, that's the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, isn't it? That's what the creator does in reaching out to us. What that does is empower us now to turn our lives inside out and to start mending these other relationships, one of which is nature. Sorry, about that. it takes five minutes to get there. Uh, St. Paul is much quicker than I am. But the point is that our relationship with nature is a responsible one. And right now it's healing a broken relationship, which like all broken relationships, start off with ignorance rather than knowledge and end up with fear rather than care and 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 harm you know r rather than fruitfulness but by knowing more that's where the science comes in we can care more that's where the responsibility comes in and be more fruitful in the part of nature we're we're in so that's where i situate the responsibility of science 
And yeah, in that picture, it becomes a sacred responsibility. Of course, that doesn't mean it's only confessional people who, who get that message. That's a message which can, can exist and thrive and breathe in a secular environment. That's one of the great, great things about it. But it nonetheless behooves us to care about nature as if we were responsible for the human world relationship. You use a lot of terms in talking about this that people aren't used to hearing. I'm not used to hearing in relation to science, such as mm -hmm. natural philosophy, mm -hmm. reconciliation. It's mm -hmm. not a term we think okay. of as relating to yeah. science. You also use the concept of the book of nature, which is kind of a yeah. traditional theological right. idea. Yeah. I kind of I'd like to know what you mean by that and how that kind of changes how you think about what you do. And yeah. then I, I want to ask whether you think we can write in the book of nature as That's well such as a good question. reading it? Natasha, that is such a lovely question. And it's one that I've thought a lot more since, uh, on since writing the book. You're right. It, it, it goes right back to Cicero, this, and, and medieval authors um, like um, uh, Hugh of St. Victor. Um, Galileo famously said the nature's written uh, like a book. And by the way, it's written in, in the language of geometry. People trans mistranslate it as mathematics, but you have to learn the symbols. And uh, so this metaphor is run and run. But then I'm thinking, like all metaphors, it's dangerous because uh, books, of course, change. Um, once upon a time, books were scrolls and you had to scroll through them carefully. You couldn't just open them anywhere. And then they invented the codex. Well, does that change what nature is just because you've, the book has changed? Nature is often called, uh, in the Christian tradition, God's second book. God's first book is the Bible, the book of Scripture, and then God also wrote the second book. Well, does, does, now look at what happened to the Reformation. Completely changed the way we read God's first book. Instead of it being in Latin, the language of an educated elite, and read, translated, and interpreted by this elite, it becomes translated in the vernacular into our own languages. Everyone can read it. In the Reformation, everyone's encouraged to make it a part of their daily piety. Oh, so the way we read first God's first book completely changes. Does that change the way we should read God's second book? In fact, it should and it could and in very healthy ways. Robert Boyle, interestingly, was one of the people who said everyone should be a little scientist in some ways. Everyone could have a little observation book and note things that they see in nature and interpret them. Um, that, by the way, got crushed by the professional science societies. And by the end of that uh, 17th century, science was already essentially the provenance of um, professional elites. So, wow, this analogy is very rich. It's also very dangerous. Maxwell picked it up and said, look, if um, nature is a book, is it like a book you read from beginning to end? Or is it more like a, a magazine? It's like a collection of magazines. You can jump dip in, in and out. Any, you can, exactly, you can dip in and out. And then I've also come up with this question that you've just raised. If it's a book, is it just a book you read? Could it be a book you write in? Let me uh, um, complicate things further by saying, actually, what, what sort of language is written in the book? Is it a book of prose or is it a book of poetry or both? And I've come to think that two things. One is that nature might be more a book of poetry than prose. And actually, I'm just working on the final stages now of a revised edition of the Poetry Music of Science, which will come out later this year, it'll be in paperback. But it's also got a whole extra chapter because, as some readers pointed out, disappointed readers who wanted their money back on volume one, for a book called Poetry and Science, it doesn't say much about poetry. <laughs> 
And of course, there's a missing chapter, but I only realised this recently, in the same way that fictional prose is related to experimental science. I think the poetic tradition of poesia is deeply entangled with theoretical science. So there's a whole new chapter on that. And that links to your other question about whether we write in the book of nature. So we write in the poetry book. Yes, we do. Because what science is, is our recreation in our minds of an image of nature. And the same way that we are the image of its creator, the science we do is an image of the creation. But more than that, what that permits us, in fact, requires us to do in this relationship mending I talked about before, is to write. Now, as soon as one says that, the next question is, do you mean, for example, write in the genetic code of nature? Well, of course, we already do that. In fact, sort of we've been doing it for years in terms of breeding, but direct genetic modification is, if you like, human beings writing in nature. Well, we've started to rewriting write the book. Rewriting mm. in the book, yeah, or, or copying bits, cutting and pasting bits from the book to other mm. places in the book. Now, we're treading on holy ground here, but treading on holy ground is what we are called to do. We just need to do it very wisely, very carefully, and considerately within a, a moral and ethical framework that is really transparent and not all about making a fast buck and making some rich and others poor. So, you know, this opens up a whole other palace here of important, really important stuff. Just from that one question that you just asked me about writing in the book of nature. It is a dangerous analogy, like all analogies, but it does sometimes lead us to really interesting questions like this. While we're waiting for that missing chapter on poetry that Tom is adding to the next edition of his book, here's another poem from Mary Peelan to finish with. This one's called Supernova, and it brings into conversation other poets like Sylvia Plath and Wallace Stevens, scientific concepts and theological ideas, divinity, resurrection. Enjoy it. Supernova. A future sun will rise up in all its glory, so red and ravenous it devours the daytime sky, matter ripping itself into sound and light in one last explosion uncontainable as art itself. Dying is an art, said Sylvia Plath, dark energy providing the opposite of gravity. Heaven performs a billion spectacular finales. It's up to us to conjure the rest. We'd all start with divinity and work backwards if we could manage the math, but even Lady Lazarus burned her miraculous hair in the calculus of resurrection. Here at the table, event horizon flickering pink, we begin with a sense of the absolute, the emperor of ice cream, Mrs. Ramsay's charm, and light, of course, the way it always travels at light speed. Everything else is contingency. Cutlery glinting like a phantom, peaches in a milk-white bowl, figs going bloody blue. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Uh, thanks today to Tom McLeish, Always a pleasure to speak with him. And his book, or one of them, is The Poetry and Music of Science. 
comparing creativity in science and art. Thank you also to Mary Peelan and to Radar Poetry for permission to use the recordings of Chaos Theory and Supernova. And you can read these and many others of hers at marypeelan.com and radarpoetry.com. We'll put the specific links in the notes. We'd love you to share this conversation with that scientist or that artist in your life or someone who's interested in either science or art or both. Word of mouth is the best way for life and faith to reach new people. Next week. What I'd experienced over the years with mum looking at the aged care when, when we put her into the facility, it was heart-wrenching. It's kind of the hands of the family, you know, handing across mum to other hands and, you know, this desperate hope that those hands would help her and care for her is one of the most traumatic things I think people and families can go through and I've seen it. But what it showed me was how important it was.